I was thinking today about how I have these plans. There's a, there's a notepad that is just off to my left here. You, you can't really tell. It's, it's sort of on the other side of the microphone arm. There's a notepad where I keep a, a running list, not only of the, the long-term goals I have or my long-term, I guess, aspirations, you could call them, and it's also got like a, a section, a column of like short-term things that would be rad as shit to do that I would love to dedicate time and energy and focus to. And one of them in kind of a, a narrative, like writing sort of way, I would love to be part of some role-playing games. I'd love to be in a gaming group again. I would love to be part of an AP or even just like a, like a home game, but like a home game that intended to either do something serialized or intended to go long form that wasn't just straight up D and D. Now, whether I run the thing or I'm part of the thing, eh, either or, but it occurs to me as I sit and I look at this list about like, I want to meet this person and I want to talk to this and I want to have, you know, this thing happen and that thing happen. It occurs to me that so many of my goals, so many of my plans they're not going to happen without me doing something first. A lot of my goals and plans are, they're not conditional, but they require a level of setup. And maybe if you look at your plans, maybe if you think about what it is you're trying to do, you're looking at things that are very conditional. Like when I have this milestone or when I sell this many books or when I publish or when I do this or when I do that, then I'll do this thing. And that's, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's awful or anything. But I do think like at some point we all have to sit down with our plans and our goals and say to ourselves, hey, you know, in order for me to accomplish this, and I do want to accomplish it, I'm going to have to do something to put myself out there. I'm going to have to do something to take some agency. I'm going to have to do something to accomplish a thing. And it can be scary, but most of the good things in your life came with a level of fear that you overcame. Most, not all. But that's what I'm thinking about tonight. That's that's where my head's at going into tonight's uh, chat. That's where I've been kind of positioning myself all afternoon. I want more people to see these things. I want more conversations, but at the same time, I don't necessarily want, you know, like crabby people in the comments or people trying to like espouse truly unhelpful advice and saying it's great. Like I, I want attention, but I want good attention. And I know that doesn't always come that way. And it's just got me thinking about goals and planning and what that means to you and how that can help you do whatever you're doing. All right. I've, I've rambled enough. I've rambled enough. Let's, let's get started. Let's, let's do this. Here we go. All right. Just remember what I've taught you.
Well, here we are. The writer's chat for February the 22nd. No camera again today. We're, we're working on that reduced anxiety load, if you know, you know. But here we are all the same. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to have you. Um, if you were here last night for the mystery stream and you've come back today, um, thanks. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that stream, and I hope you're going to enjoy this one as well. If this is your first time checking this out, hi, I'm John, and uh, it's my job to help you write better. I've been doing this all my adult life, and I love doing this. And what this is, if you're not sure, is uh, a question and answer session where I'm going to answer questions from all across social media. But let's do the regular opening so you get a sense of the vibe. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, planners, plotters, singers, musicians, rock stars, punks, avant-garde people, sex workers, sex enthusiasts, cheese lovers, anybody who snacks, anybody who thinks about snacks, anybody who can understand people when their mouths are full, people who watch media with the subtitles on. Anybody who's ever had to stretch a hamstring, anybody who's ever tried to figure out how to make dinner just staring at an, a fridge full of ingredients but swearing there's nothing to eat, anybody who's ever tried to like convince a cat to totally move two inches to the right just before you do something important, and most importantly, the comrades. It's so nice to be here. I love this. I know I was literally just here yesterday, but it feels like a lifetime ago, and I'm super excited for this. There are some amazing questions tonight, and if you're watching this live on Twitch and YouTube, hi Twitch, hi YouTube, uh, you can always uh, ask your questions in chat as well. Otherwise, if you're watching this on YouTube the day after, uh, go leave those questions in the comments, and we'll have a conversation, and we'll see what happens. Shall we get started? Are we ready for this? Ready to go? Let's do it. Question number one. Pro writing aid. Auto crit. Hemingway. What's the point? Which should I use? Now, if you don't know what these things are, and it is possible that you're maybe familiar with one of the three or two of the three, but not necessarily all three. What these are, this is software. These are apps. These are programs. This is subscription service stuff that will, uh, it claims, make you a better writer. It claims to do that. And it does that by highlighting certain words. It does that by telling you its estimation of how good a writer you are. It does this by applying a blanket set of rules devoid of nuance so that you have to make a binary, arbitrary conclusion that, oh, this software is highlighting a particular word. This must be bad because otherwise they wouldn't be highlighting it. I should not use this word. Even though it's probably okay that you use this word. All of these programs, and I want to make sure you're really, really understanding what, what I'm saying here. All of these programs are garbage. All of them are trash. All of them lead to inarticulate, indecorous, lazy, unformed, underdeveloped writing. This is the stuff, Pro Writing Aid, Autocrit, Hemingway, that convinces you blanket statements totally apply to writing. All adverbs are bad. The passive voice, which we highlight here, here, and here, is bad. This stuff is 
at, you know, you're writing at a sixth grade level. Sure. Writing is an art. You're making art. Software does not make art. Software applies rules and cold calculation to things. Just having some software highlight your adverbs is not going to ever teach you why adverbs work here or don't work here. And I don't give a shit about, well, it uses AI. Go fuck AI. These programs are garbage. And leaning on them, relying on them, counting on them, because, oh, it's what everybody else is doing. Hey, man, everybody else is going to jump off a bridge. You're going to see if you can fly too? This software does not make you a better writer. It makes you a writer that conforms to a standard that is not indicative of the art you can produce. This software tries to create sort of a homogeneity, uh, a sameness, a uniformity, a dullness in art. Because it has taken the idea of, I'm making a thing, and fuck it, I have my voice out here, and I'm proud about it, and I'm bold with it, and I'm really trying my best. And it strips all of that away for the sake of productivity, for the sake of writing faster, for the sake of writing better, even though better is a clinical thing in this case. It's to turn it into what's publishable and what's good. It's turned your art into a commodity and that's just capitalism that's just some nonsense so if you want to pay $30 a month $30 a month to have some software tell you you're using an adverb again hey if you got $30 to blow whoo enjoy it I could think of way better ways to spend $30 you don't need these programs you don't need any of them If you're going to use any of them, I guess use Hemingway because it doesn't cost you anything. But at the same time, it's not going to make you a better writer. You know what's going to make you a better writer? Writing better. Writing more often. Engaging with other humans. Not caring about blanket applications of rules. Really and truly trying to say the thing that's in your head on the page. And then fucking things up. Making mistakes getting better, getting help, getting actual feedback rather than just color-coded squares on a screen and really doing something about it. And I think too many people, too many writers, too often are like, I am not doing that. That seems like work. That seems like it takes too long. I am just not interested in it when they should be. Because the whole point of this, I thought, was to put your story out into the world, to create that art where only you can do it. And you can point to it and go, that's mine. I did this. I created this thing, and it's moving and affecting people. Because if you're just saying, I'm doing this because it's a route to money, and it's better than an office job, there are loads of other jobs that are better than an office job that will pay you more stably, provide better health care, and even pay you faster. So what are you doing here and why are you leaning on this software to do some of your job for you? Focus on your art. Even if you don't think you're very good at it, you will get better at it if you're willing to endure the mistakes and the frustrations and the fear and ask actual questions of actual experts and collect and gather data outside the metrics and abstractions of a $30 a month piece of software. Your art's going to be messy. Your art's going to have bumps and bruises and fingerprints and dents and scuffs, and that makes it 
beautiful. Books aren't successful because they're flawless. Books aren't successful because they're all written the same and they all sound the same. Books are successful because they impact people. They make a difference. Traditional publishing does not give a shit about that because they're looking for, well, what's going to sell? What's going to answer the, the consultant's cry for you know interest and trend? Who gives a shit? Create art. Forget these programs. Save your 30 bucks. If you really want to spend 30 bucks a month, give me $20 a month and, you know, spend 10 on like a coffee delivery on Uber Eats or something. So many better ways you can do this. Don't confuse like sameness and productivity for quality because they're not the same thing. That's just capitalism telling you another lie and you eating it up with a spoon. I guess that's how we're starting tonight. Oh, man, I wonder what the next question is going to be. Question two, are, the, are some subgenres better for lazy writers than others? Man, why did we get surprisingly spicy? Okay, first of all, who are you calling lazy? Are you calling yourself lazy? Like you're recognizing, hey, John, I'm a lazy writer. Okay, or are you just like applying some kind of arbitrary rule about like, these other people who I don't like, I'm calling them lazy. If you're self-identifying and you're calling yourself out and you're going to say that, well, oh, I'm a lazy writer, where do I fit in? The subgenre is not going to be the best way to figure out where you fit because a subgenre is just a label. It's just a descriptor for the thing you're making. Your activity or your laziness don't matter. It doesn't factor in. Like if, if you're writing a fantasy novel, you might want to write, you know, and, and you might think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm fairly lazy, so I'm not going to write like high fantasy or urban fantasy. I'm going to write, I don't know, a subgenre that's not really very popular. Maybe I'm going to write romantic fantasy. Well, you can, you can be in any subgenre you want. It's, it's how you're approaching the craft and the art of writing that's going to make a difference. So, no, some subgenres are not better for lazy writers than others. If you're a lazy writer, the thing that's going to help you the best is adjusting your scheduling. If, if you're lazy, it's going to take longer to do the things because you're lazy. Now, lazy isn't necessarily bad and pejorative. I know we are taught capitalism that lazy is bad and Protestant work ethic teaches us that if we're lazy, we're somehow like transgressing against all the good things in the world. Lazy is just lazy. And don't confuse lazy for burnt out. And don't confuse lazy for depressed. And don't confuse lazy for I'm just not working as hard as everybody else. Your subgenre is just the category where your story sits. Your activity level is how active you are. The two are not connected. I do want to answer this question in chat about our first question. Is it wrong to use those programs as a first pass edit and then ask people for opinions? No, it's not wrong, Ross. It's not wrong to use the programs. It's, it's not like a crime or anything. You're not, you're not violating the delicate ecosystem of the world. But if you're already going to ask people for opinions... Why not ask them for opinions in that first pass, knowing that it's going to be messy, knowing that it's a first thing, and knowing that if you're unsure that if you gave something to somebody and you were like, hey, read this, 
and you felt like in order for it to be good enough for them to read, what you're saying is, I think my shit is so bad, I don't want to just show it to you unless it's been at least tweaked a little. And that that screams to me an issue of like, you got to let yourself be imperfect. It's not the end of the world. And if the person's opinion is one that you value and that person is kind, compassionate, they're going to understand, oh, it's a first draft. Of course, it's not going to be perfect. No one, no one creates a first pass that's amazing. It's a first pass. So let it be, you know, this slow, messy, warped thing. Because if you're putting the people around you whose opinions you value, whose critique can make a difference, they should meet your anxiety and your frustration and your fear with kindness. As opposed to, oh, God, Ross totally killed this thing. Look at this hot piece of shit. If, if that's what you're getting, you need to find some new people. I, I know you, Ross. Yes, I do know you. And I know you hate messy writing. But everything is messy until it's done. And even then, once it's done, it's still messy. Don't think messy is automatically bad. Messy is in transit. It's in transformation. It's, it's undergoing effort. Messy's good. We want messy. If everything was, you know, just like I use this software and it does everything for me and I do this and I use this program and I do that, then first of all, I'd have to get a job probably at the mall selling towels. And, and second of all, the world would be a lot less colorful, a lot less diverse, a lot more sterile, a lot more corporate. And, I'm sure that's great fodder for, oh, I don't know, a cyberpunk story. But you got to let the mess exist because that mess is what makes your art your art as opposed to just the widgets you created at the factory. Messy doesn't mean you're bad. Messy doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means like, hey, this thing I just tried for the first time and I'm still trying to figure out what it is, it's not done yet. And that should be a given. Don't overthink it. The programs aren't wrong. They're just... They're unnecessary. They are exploiting a fear and exploiting an expectation and capitalizing on it. They're unnecessary. Save your 30 bucks or save your hard drive space or whatever. A good critique partner, a good critique group, people whose opinions you value can do just as much, if not more. I mean, if you're really wondering, not just you specifically, Ross, but if somebody out there is really wondering, like, are my adverbs a problem? The best thing you can do is go talk to a reader because if they can understand what it is you're trying to say, who cares if you've got adverbs? You're accomplishing your job. Whereas the software is going to tell you it's an adverb. Panic, freak out. Oh, no. There's no reason to. So it's not wrong. It's not like a travesty. I just wish people didn't rush right to this urge to make the perfect book or the sellable book because they're being led not by art, but by capital. I just wish people took a minute and realized that if they just made art, they'd still get to the capital part. They'd also just be a little bit happier along the way. That's my problem with the programs, Ross. Great question. On we go to the next. Question number, man, we are just firing. It's like a spice cabinet in here. Question number three, does using profanity make you a hack? 
How do I know if I'm using too much of it? Well, fuck. Does using fucking profanity make you a goddamn fucking hack? I don't fucking know this shit. What the fuck am I supposed to fucking do? All right, I guess the first fucking thing I'm going to fucking tell you is that who's defining what a hack is? There is no, to the best of my goddamn motherfucking opinion, no general consensus as to what is or isn't a hack, nor what constitutes one. It's just a hack. And honestly, it's a word that gets tossed in the pejorative generally towards people you don't like. So, okay, is it really ultimately bad to be a hack? Are hacks unsuccessful? Do hacks not get audiences? Do hacks not sell books? How is hack bad? That's the first thing we're going to do. Second thing we're going to do. Who gives a shit about profanity? Um, my grandmother was always fond of saying, who died and made you Christ? Because let's be real. If you're going to dictate and word police somebody, you certainly have an opinion. And you believe that your opinion should be the top of the food chain. Um Profanity is profanity. Profanity is language, and language is the tool we use to relate to one another. So if profanity is warranted in this case, first of all, it has to do with the word profane, which already means we're agreeing to a set of conditions about what words mean or project, which is nonsense. But no, using profanity doesn't make you a hack. It makes you a person. Because people, I don't know if you know this, use profanity. Now, some do and some don't, and they have their own reasons for it. But it's a part of language, the same way an uh or a like or a totally or, I don't know, any other word that I can't think of right off the top of my head is. It's language. Use it. How do I know if I'm using too much of it? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sorry. It's, it's not, it doesn't work like that. If you're unhappy with how you are communicating, if you, since you're the one doing the communicating, it's your decision, if you're not happy with how you are getting the thing broadcast from your brain out into the world, and you are not happy with the reception that broadcast is getting, it's, it's not necessarily the profanity's fault, because those are just words. You've picked a few other words, I'm guessing. I don't think if you're trying to, like, explain what your story's about and you call it some shit, I don't think that's going to derail the entirety of your explanation. It's just not as clear as other words. But sometimes, yes, you could just talk about, man, I hate this shit. And it's completely contextually understandable. Profanity is just profanity. I use it like breathing because it seems very natural to me. And if you want to call me a hack, well, then I guess I'm a very old hack. Notice how little I care about this anymore because it's not a big deal to me. You can go do you and I'll go do me and we never have to interact and it's totally cool, man. As for how much is too much, you're going to want to try and get like a level of what you're comfortable with. I use it a lot. And sometimes, depending on my audience, depending on my situation, depending on my mood, depending on how busy I am, depending on what it is I'm trying to do, I'll use less of it. But 90% of my time, I curse like a stevedore. Because I do. Because that's just how I communicate. It doesn't make you bad. Just language. Use it. 
And yes, Troy, if uh, you could ever, not just you specifically, but if you could ever reach the lofty height of hack, of course you'd be excited. Just, it's exciting to have a level. It's exciting to reach a milestone. But this sort of moralizing, sanctimonious horseshit is perpetuated by people who think that because of their unspoken privilege, and I'm going to guess it's probably usually patriarchal and white, their unspoken privilege allows them to dictate how other people should communicate or act or create or speak or think or be silent or whatever, because that way their status quo, their opinion and their ideas go unchallenged because that way they won't have to try and change themselves or reflect at all who they are because they lack empathy and they're unwilling to be better people. So instead they're just going to dictate these from the soapbox rules about how profanity is bad and you're a hack if you use it. And, and really the only appropriate answer to somebody like that is go fuck yourself. And then we move on to the next question. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? About two seconds before I turned the microphone on, just before the little timer kicked off, I was like holding in a massive sneeze and it's still sort of there. So if any at moment some polka music kicks up, it's because I've started to sneeze and I really don't want to get snot on the microphone or like blow out your eardrums if you're listening to this. Questions, anybody? Else we will march on. Honestly, I didn't expect this much spice in the first 20 minutes. I, re- I promise I didn't. I super didn't. I thought we were just going to kind of roll right through today. Oh, boy. Here we go. Question number four. How do I advertise my stuff without being a dick about it? Can I, can I just say I love this question? I love this question because of just how unvarnished it is. Remember how we just talked about profanity and a hack? Like, are you going to get real mad about seeing the words being a dick in a thing? Like, you missed the right here. Where, hang on. I got rid of the rant bell. I got rid of the rant bell because I was trying to, like, you know, put put like some extra polish and spin on stuff because I thought that's what people wanted or I thought that might get me more than, like, two people watching. So I stopped trying to do like wacky game show shit. And I started doing like more like I'm a big boy using my big boy pants doing like adult stuff. And I'm real happy in this space where I'm kind of like blending between like a near constant level of rant and therapy and questions and compassion and goofy shit. So maybe I should start leaving the rant bell a little bit closer to the table. Maybe. Here, just for you. How do I advertise my stuff without being a dick about it? Well, that assumes, underneath this all, that on some level, people who advertise are likely dicks. Which is not necessarily the case. For a number of reasons. You advertise your stuff by not just telling everybody where it's available and how much it is and then walking away because that's the dick part, the forced commodification. You talk about what's exciting. 
You don't launch right into that formula of my book is X plus Y plus Z because that's eye roll inducing and a little nauseating. So instead, you, you talk, you frame your story, you frame your stuff, whatever it might be, in a way that sounds engaging. Hey, do you have like 90 minutes to two hours? Do you, do you actually want a human being to give you actionable advice? Come check out the writer's chat. Here's a link. Hey, do you want to get this level of conversation in your ears on a pretty regular, almost daily basis? We're going back to daily basis soon, um, now that my cold has cleared up. Uh, come check out the John Helps You Write Better podcast. You just talk about the things you're making in ways that are exciting and enthusiastic for you, and that enthusiasm will inform and rub off on other people. I'm sorry there's no great, more profound magic trick than that. It's just a matter of you don't want to solely do the commodification or what's very popular in newsletter culture, which is to like set everything up and tell this very heartstring pulling, button-pushing story, and then all of a sudden hit them with the, you know, if you felt this way, the best thing you can do is give me $9,000 because that's weird. Like that's just wrong. You can't spend seven paragraphs and two gifts of, you know, a favorite TV show and talk about how it's really hard to be, you know, sensitive and and sincere. And then all of a sudden say, by the way, if you're sensitive and sin sincere, please give me like credit card debt. That'd be awesome. And yes, it Troy, it is super amazing how contagious excitement is. One of my favorite uh, professors, one of my favorite people of all time used to, when you asked him how he was doing on most days, he would tell you that he was so excited he should be investigated. And it, it used to make me, I, I was young, I, it used to make me just laugh because he was just, he was always ready. He was always fired up. It wasn't a rant. He was genuinely happy to be talking to students about, writing and publishing and broadcasting. He was genuinely excited to teach things. He was genuinely excited to hear what you had going on. And I think about that all the time because in those moments where I do end up happy or excited or interested or something, I do think, man, I am proportionally so happy compared to how depressed or anxious I was. I should be investigated. And that enthusiasm is, is fuel, that spreads. It's, it's carrying one match to unlit matches and it just sets more people off and it spreads and it ripples and it rolls through things. Enthusiasm and excitement are huge. And if you doubt this, go look at a baby, go look at a, a small human and then be like small human and be happy and watch their reaction and then be all small human and be mopey and watch their reaction. You can advertise in an excited, sincere, enthusiastic way and come across and sell what you want to sell. Now, Ross is following up. I don't want to end up being the guy that barrages people with links and, hey, buy this. Um, you're, you're not going to be. Like, if you don't want to be that, don't be that. You are the person who has that absolute control over how you broadcast. I mean, if you're going to spend a, buy a course, like clearly I should, you should buy mine, you know, but I'm working on it. But if you don't want to be a thing, don't be that thing. Just because you have a link in something doesn't mean you are automatically that guy who's barraging links just because you put one link in a tweet or one link in an email. 
That's not a barrage. That's a link in an email. A barrage would be like when we think about barrage, what do we think about? 10, 20, 30, 70, 1,000, some number greater than one or two. And you don't confuse excitement for desperation. You know, this isn't please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please buy my thing. That's not that. Advertising and marketing isn't automatically desperate. It's just, hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Check this out. It's really rad. I model the advice I'm giving very well. God, Troy, you know, um, I'm going to tell you exactly why. Because I'm a terrible marketer. I suck. I never talk nearly enough about what I'm doing. I Not because I want to be the guy who barrages links, but because I just figure like other people's stuff's better. So I don't really talk about my stuff. But I will always talk about my stuff enthusiastically. And Ross, I'm going to ask you, you're, you're a frequent consumer or checker outer of my stuff. Have I ever been a dick about anything I've talked about? I can be a dick. We both know I can be a dick. But if I tell you like, oh man, if you got questions, come over to the writer's chat. I'll totally spend, you know, an hour answering one small thing to make sure that you understand. Does that make me a dick? If it does, tell me. I mean, you're not going to like you're not going to bug me or anything. I've been to therapy today. I can take it. But the the idea that you can advert that advertising only comes either in these two extremes of like indifferent and dickish is I think very inaccurate. And I think it's a lot easier to say I'm not going to be a dick because this is these are here are some behaviors. Make yourself a list. Here are some behaviors about. Uh, here are some behaviors that I use to identify a dick. A dick does one, two, three, four, five things, right? So as long as you don't do those five things, you're not being a dick, and then you can advertise. So, if it really is important to you that you're worried about skirting that line, define that line. What are the things you don't want to do? I don't want to barrage people with links. I don't want to be like, hey, buy this. Okay. So then don't be that. Find other ways of communicating about your thing. And then hold yourself accountable. And then practice. And you'll get better at it. Now, that's the advice, Troy. I need to desperately model better because I don't do nearly enough talking about my stuff. Wonderful. On we go to the next one. Question number five. If I don't know what the query reader is interested in, how do I know what to talk about in my query? I have seen, I think, three or four versions of this question since the last chat. And what it tells me or what it reveals to me is a fairly substantial misunderstanding of why we query why queries are part of the gatekeeping process in traditional publishing. So let me tell you why people query. It is not to tell the query reader what it is they want to hear. It's not that at all, because that is no different than being the guy who barrages you with just links and says, hey, buy this. You know how when we have conversations with people, you can get that sense of they're telling me what I want to hear because they want the conversation over or because they want me to act or react in a certain way? You know what I mean? The same thing is true with a query. If, if you're a query reader, a submissions, acquisitions person, a pimp, an agent, or whatever, 
then yeah, if somebody's feeding you just enough applesauce and mayonnaise to give you what it is you're looking for, you can spot it. We query our books to promote our effort in some way and create the potential for connection because of it. If I tell you about my story and I use these certain words and I frame it in a certain way, then maybe like a movie trailer can excite you to see a film. Maybe then this query will excite you to read my manuscript. That's why we query. And we query because we, the query writer, are excited about what we're querying, the manuscript, and that way we don't necessarily need to know the exact specifics of what the query reader is interested in because of all the pool of things the query reader might be interested in, we have to have that confidence that our manuscript and its story and the ideas fall into that pool of things a reader could be, would be, probably is interested in. Part of this also reveals that maybe you're querying the wrong people because if you're writing a romance novel and you're querying people who read romance novels, then on some level we're already doing the thing the query reader is interested in. It's just a matter now of engaging in a course of degrees, which is back to you, the ball is back in your court at that point, to figure out like, well, if they're, into, if they're writing romance or they're reading romance and I'm writing romance, I got to make sure my romance engages them. So how do I do that? You don't want to just tell them what you think they want to hear because eventually they will read the book. And if your manuscript isn't living up to the hype, they will reject you. They will drop you. They will say, hey, you know what? We changed our minds. That's a thing that happens. I've written those emails. It sucks, but it's a thing that happens in this business. Try not to have it happen to you. Talk What you talk about in your query is... Whatever potential, whatever emotion, whatever ideas, whatever concepts are going to encourage someone to say, yes, I want your mental movie in my brain. Please, you've given me enough things to interest me. Give me more. And the only place they can get more is inside the manuscript. That's what you talk about in your query. By the way, if you ever want help with your query, johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com. I'll be happy to help you with your query anytime. Even if you're like, I have to write a query and I don't know what to write. That's fine. Give me an hour. We will absolutely give you a query. Next question. Question number six. I got to have a mouthful of tea and I'm going to ring the bell. I'm going to ring the bell for this. Here we go. I'm ringing a bell, Ross, just for you. Question number six. What's your beef with Scrivener? Now, you might draw from this question as well as question number one that I have beef with most major writing software, and you'd be right. It's not an inaccurate thing to say at all. See, I, I have tremendous beef with Scrivener because Scrivener is a very one-track tool. Unlike Word, unlike Google Docs, um. Scrivener has a limited, stunted capacity to edit. The editing potential in Scrivener sucks. It's miserable. I end up having to color code words. That's not really editing. That's me using crayons. That is nowhere near like the full extent of what I can do in my job when I help a client with a book. 
So my beef with Scrivener is that it claims to be this fantastic tool for writers to help make books happen, except two things are true. One, it sucks with the editing process. And two, nobody wants a Scrivener file. You're going to, you're going to export it to word at some point. Cause people are looking for a doc or a doc X. Why are they looking for a doc or a doc X or maybe a Google doc? Because it's more accessible. When you have a Scrivener file, it's not just a file, it's a folder. In fact, it's multiple folders of multiple files all building around a single project. Trying to figure out what you need to send to somebody is a pain in the ass and usually involves sharing a whole lot of permissions on like a cloud service to get it done. And in the end, you're still left with the fact that, oh, Scrivener is great to write with, but not great to produce a book with. But so many authors are out there like, I'm going to be published. I'm a serious author. I'm using Scrivener. Okay, that's nice. Um, you're, you're, you're a serious writer for sure. But you understand that as we move up this chain and move forward in our process for development, uh, Scrivener immediately loses its utility, right? You, you know that because nobody's like, hey, send me your Scrivener project. They're like, hey, send me your MS. Send me your manuscript in a doc. Because that way I can put it on my laptop or I can take your Google Doc on my phone or I can do this or I can do that. Nobody's partying with Scrivener past the writing stage. Now, if you love Scrivener and it helps you track your words and it helps you with the corkboard track your scenes and it helps you write in asynchronous ways at times and you love it and you're using its full functionality to the best of your ability, I'm happy for you. Truly and really, I really am. It's great that you're doing that. But understand that there are limitations to Scrivener. It is not the be-all, end-all, just like there were limitations to ProWriting Aid, AutoCrit, and Hemingway. They have a utility for some people and some mindsets and some goals. But ultimately, Scrivener was $40 I spent that didn't do the things I wanted it to do. And then when it turned around and became a setup for, like, well, I want to do more than just be a writer. I want to coach. I want to edit. I want to help people. I want to develop things. Scrivener was nowhere to help me. In fact, Scrivener got in my way. So that's my beef with Scrivener. If you love it, that's great. You're not wrong for using it. If you're getting it to do what you wanted to do, awesome. I'm happy for you. Keep doing it. Just please export your document when you're done. It just makes life easier for everybody up the food chain. Okay? Are there any more questions from chat? I wasn't, Ross, I wasn't trying to destroy your entire like software suite of skills. I'm just, these are the things I think about stuff. And, you know, you're always welcome to like, write me a defense and I will happily read it into this microphone and it will go out to people. Or you could just write a comment and I will read it out. It's totally fine. But um, I think a lot of writers fall into that trap of like, I have this software and now I am going to do the winning. And so many people get bogged down and trying to figure out like, what's the best writing software? And the answer is whatever one helps you write, whatever one helps you feel comfortable enough and gives you permission enough to put words on a page so that the story stops only living in your brain. So if that's AutoCrit or ProWritingAid or Hemingway or 
tablet things in Notion or Scrivener or Ulysses or IA Writer or Highland 2 or who knows whatever else. Whatever works, works. Whatever helps you get the story out. Whatever permission slip you need, get it. But understand that that's only one link in this chain. That's only one stop on our mass transit towards your ultimate publishable goal. And not everybody's going to work in that same space. Questions? Did I do that thing where I just sort of like blew past everybody and I've just deluged you in 40-something minutes of conversation? I've done that before. I apologize. Shall we go on? Question seven, a follow-up from last night's mystery stream, which if you haven't checked out, it's on the YouTube channel and available on the podcast feed. What do I need to know about having a mystery as a subplot rather than as a main plot? Well, um, to use some of the terminology we covered in the mystery stream, you're going to have a smaller clue economy because you're putting less focus on the mystery than if it were at the sort of the core of the story. A mystery subplot, much like any other kind of subplot, gets less attention and has the reasonable expectation of being less complex and less urgent to some degree than the main plot. One of the things you can do with positioning a mystery as a subplot is better weave it into the main plot. Like maybe the answer to the mystery helps explain or extend part of the main plot as well. But by and large, mystery as subplots are simpler. They have fewer moving parts. Those moving parts are a bit clearer to, to sort of suss out. And as a subplot, the answers are pretty direct. There's not a lot of inference to make usually. There's not a lot of over-explanation. It's just less critical, less big, less detailed than the main plot. But all the same rules apply. You have your action economy, your clue economy, your period of discovery. You know, you have your investigation beat. It leads to a reaction, which leads to speculation or a decision, which leads to more action, which leads to another discovery over and over again. You're just going to have fewer of them than if it were the main plot. Also, it's assumed that the reward, the sought-after goal, the, the prize of solution is less critical because if it were more critical, it would be the main plot. Beyond that, though, nothing changes. Your character might not be by primary nature a detective, like in a detective murder mystery, but they're still going to adopt certain traits of a detective to engage with that subplot. Maybe they're, you know, uh, a newlywed who discovers that the honeymoon paradise location they're at is also secretly like a strange murder house or something. So they're not intending to be a detective. It turns out that they're, I don't know, a software programmer on their honeymoon. But it turns out, in addition to just being a newlywed on their honeymoon, they have to occasionally solve a mystery here or figure out what happened to the missing this, that, or the other thing while also dealing with a significant problem. Great question. On we go to the next. 
Another question about last night's stream. Following up on last night's stream, how do I build a knight errant? Now, the knight errant is sort of the, the mold and template for the hard-boiled detective. The noir, the trench coat wearing, the, the Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, um, McDonald... 1940s kind of detective that we think of when we think about black and white detective movies. The knight errant is the idea that this character, whomever they might be, man or woman or other, doesn't, you know, any, any gender, any kind of identify, any, any kind of identification. They have a moral code that separates them from the rest of the world. That's going to be item number one. This moral code contains in it a dominant vein or strain of thought that leads them to be noble, good, virtuous, tough, honest, sincere, something positive. And that line of positivity is in direct conflict or intersection with sort of the rules of the world. They're a good person in a bad place. And that's because one of the other things you do to build a knight errant is set up the world they're in. So this world has certain inviolable, unchanging rules. And these rules are almost always sloped negatively. Like, if you're rich, you can get away with murder. Or corruption exists in every corner of every enterprise. Or um, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Or... Um, if you're famous, you get first pick of all the important stuff, whatever it might be. There are rules. Have-nots will always have not in the end. There are rules in your society that the knight errant exists in, and the knight errant's moral code stands in opposition to those rules. But the knight errant's code does not change those rules. It's, they're just an abrasive. They're grit in the oyster to create a pearl. Is that the metaphor? They're, they're just there to stand in contrast. So when the knight errant applies their good to the world to solve the crime, to do the detecting, to find the killer, find the jeweled falcon, figure out the murder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that good is smaller than the societal super law, but that good is... Temporary, fleeting, short-term. It's a change that exists, but it never permeates and reaches out into you know greater society, even if the detective were like saving the governor from a murder. Sure, still the governor, still a thing, but at the end of the day, the societal rules still steamroll and silence and weigh on the knight errant. And the knight errant is itinerant, moving from place to place, case to case, action to action. Maybe they always have the same office. Maybe they always have the same car. But the change they create by doing their job is temporary compared to how rough the world is that they're a part of. Defining the character's moral code, defining the societal rules, and then framing a plot for that character to engage in and in show, figuring out the consequences of resolving the story or dealing with the story in the face of those societal rules will help you frame out your knight errant pretty effectively. Uh, the knight errant is one of my favorite kind of construction tropes. It allows you to tell everything from, you know, the rogue with a heart of gold all the way to the jaded detective, all the way to something more 
current like John Wick all the way to, you know, uh, the Cl- Strider all the way out to I'm trying to think of like a sci-fi one, like, um, one of the more ambitious, uh, captains or leaders in Star Trek where they have a moral code and they know the societal rules, but they're still going to do their own thing. Not just as like, I'm a bad boy who doesn't follow the rules, but it's because they're doing the right thing and they're not going to sit there and brag about doing the right thing. They're just going to do it. Would Mando be a knight errant? Yes. uh, The Mandalorian, since Mandalorian is a variation on wolf and cub. uh, Yes. The Mando is a knight errant. That's a really good one. I didn't think of that one. That's an excellent one. Yes. Mando's a knight errant. Marvelous. Good job, Ross. And yes, uh, you can pick the alcohol they're pickled in. Also true. Have I seen Chinatown? Yes. Uh, I like Chinatown. Is it the tightest screenplay I've ever seen? No, but it's right up there. Uh, It's in my top five. Let's say top five. But it is not the tightest I've ever seen. It's damn close, though. Can I explain how, yeah, let me get a cup of tea and then I will explain how John Wick is a knight errant. So, in the world of John Wick, there are societal codes. You spend your gold coins, you interact with the society of hit people and contracts and things. And the world has certain rules. You take oaths, you hold your promises, you do this, you do that. And John Wick got out. He fell in love, married a woman, the woman died. He, he got out and he got a dog. And he was on a trajectory to do the right thing and have his own life. When, his mor- when we see that his moral code is really set up in two ways. One, there is the moral code of he's just a guy who's doing the best he can, period. But the subset of that is sometimes the best thing this guy can do is murder you. He is relentless this way. He was relentless in trying to live his life the best way he could. And now he's relentless in the, I'm going to make sure I murder every single one of you who are stopping me from doing what I want. I want out. So the world's, the rules of the world Uh, exert undue force over John Wick so that John Wick is forever reacting to them. And his moral code guides him further and further in the series, which I thought was a trilogy, but now is going to be a quadrilogy at the very least, uh, where he is going to topple the world's rules. But ultimately, because the world's rules are so pervasive, and even though he is just one character, he is the hero of our story, ultimately society is bigger than he is. That's why we're going to get a spinoff show, and that's why we're going to get extended universe material. He's a knight errant because although he does some good in the world, which is to eliminate this, that, or the other bad guy, ultimately the society is bigger than he is. And there are really only two conditions John Wick can end with. Either he is killed or he enacts such a level of total change that he ceases to be a knight errant and transitions into another trope form probably warrior victorious the the great and mighty conan who's who topples kingdoms and then claims the seat of power um this is everything from alexander the great to napoleon to other famous historical pieces of shit 
it's a it's a aggressive, violent upheaval kind of thing. Is Judge Dredd a knight errant? Yes. Maybe in a different way, because I mean, he's more about law enforcement, but he has his own moral code. It's the degree at which the moral code is accessed and flaunted. In game terms, there's a difference between being lawful, neutral, and chaotic good. That's really sort of at the heart of a lot of knight errancy. This idea of like, I have my own code, I do my own thing. Uh, okay, that's great. If we make a big deal about that, we scale somewhere between vigilante and obnoxious do-gooder. And if we go to lawful neutral, we get a, a rule follower who maybe can be anywhere from like overly officious to kind of centrist. There's a lot of flexibility in knight errants. It's a matter of using this. Why would you use a knight errant? You'd use one because you're trying to illustrate how a character is positioned in contrast to the greater, bigger world. And we're trying to connect the reader to that character. And we're trying to make sure that we have this emotional sympathy with the character while also demonstrating that the character is up against odds they can't possibly really defeat. Not in the long term. That's why you use a knight errant. That's why knight errant shows up with your hard-boiled detectives, which is why they were in the mystery stream last night. Next question. Question nine. I'm a writer and book blogger. That's cool. I also have an OnlyFans account. That's cool, too. Is that a problem for my books? No, because your books don't care what you do. But that wasn't your question. It should not be a problem for your audience that you have an OnlyFans account. I'm sure there are going to be some segment of your population who, for whatever reason, I wonder what it might be, have a problem with you having an OnlyFans account and employing whatever or producing whatever kind of art you want. They're going to look at that kind of thing and judge the rest of what you do by it. Because, you know, that's a totally reasonable thing that scared people do, right? So is it a problem that you're, writer, you're a writer and blogger, but you also, like, I don't know, take some photos or record some stuff? No, because if it makes you happy, do it. If it is a means by which you get to express yourself, do it. If it is a means by which you can express yourself, and pay some bills because we live in a hellscape of slowly declining civilization, do it. If someone's going to give you a lot of flack because, oh my God, you write books, but you also, you know, occasionally take photographs of body parts or something. How dare you? They're not complaining about you. They are only revealing their limited expectation and limited definition of what a writer should be. And that's not on you to change. That's not in your wheelhouse. It's not your job to fix that. You can't control that. You can make whatever case you want about how they're tasteful or how it's not that big a deal or, you know, whatever it might be, but you're not going to change their mind. And it is at times frustrating and wasteful to even bother trying because you can make a great argument for how, you know, you're just doing this for this reason or that reason, or it's unobtrusive, or, you know, it's it's low cost or low incentive for entry. And they'll, uh, they'll agree with you, and then they'll turn around and still have a problem with it. 
if you're a writer and you have an OnlyFans, if you're a writer and you have a podcast, if you're a writer and you, I don't know, walk old ladies across streets, none of those things are a problem for your books. There's nothing wrong with being sex body positive or, or, or affirming positive and also writing. Other people might have a problem with it, but that doesn't make it your problem. And it doesn't mean you're wrong. Do what you want. Not because you're trying to stick, you know, stick your thumb in the eye of everybody else, but because this is how you choose to express yourself. And lots of us have lots of different ways we express ourselves. Maybe it's into a microphone. Maybe it's into a camera. Maybe it's static in, in single photos. Maybe it's in this and maybe it's in that. We're all allowed to express ourselves. Don't overthink it. Enjoy your OnlyFans. Enjoy your writing. Enjoy your book blogging. Do what makes you happy and pursue it for as long as it does. Great question. Hey, chat. Do we have some more questions? I did not put enough ice cubes in that tea. That is really warm and really strong. Wow. Okay. Oh. Would Riddick be an example of a knight errant because he opposes the Necrons who are trying to make the world follow order, keeping what you kill? Or would Riddick be classified like Conan? Oh, okay. Um, I got to think now. First movie, knight errant, totally. Over time, there's more of that evolution away from knight errant into conqueror or into um, embattled hero or something. But yeah, I think Riddick starts as a knight errant. Wow, I haven't thought about, you know, pitch dark and all that stuff. Did did he have hair in that movie? I'm trying to remember. It's been so, maybe stubble maybe? It's been so long since I thought about it. Wow. Yes, Riddick would be a knight errant. Well, that's crazy. I haven't thought about that. But yeah, it's, 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 it's okay. It's, it's all right. YouTube ate a question. What's the best way to approach a trunk novel you've put away for a long time? And he was bald. Okay, cool. Um, cool, 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 cool. All right. Uh, um, YouTube ate a question. I, it's been doing that lately. I'm so sorry. What's the best way to approach a trunk novel you've put away for a long time and get it publishable? Um, first thing you want to do with that trunk novel is check and see if it's finished. How close to done is it? And what would need to be done in order to complete it? Like, did we put it away because it's stalled out and you're, I don't know, 30, 60, 80,000 words from complete? Like, is it is it close to being finished? That's going to be job number one. If you can't complete job number one because you wrote the idea out and it doesn't really have legs and there's no real tension to it and it, it's just not coming together for you, then that's why it's a trunk novel in the first place. Then you, you jettison it or scrap it for parts and move forward. If it's done or minimally needs minimal finishing, once it's there, go back through, because it's been a long enough time, you've got more emotional objectivity than you had before while you were writing it. So you can look at it somewhat dispassionately and sort of hack through and poke through 
the the thick jungle and brambles of your writing style? Does it need, you know, to the best of your knowledge in the state that it's in, can you spot any things that are really unclear? Do you have a lot of vague pronouns? Are all your sentences and paragraphs roughly the same length? Is there a whole lot of talking at the beginning of every paragraph? Like, identify the patterns you can and then try to shake them up in some way, shape, or form. At that point, though, once you're able to do to it all you can do by yourself, and to be fair, that's a lot. That includes rewriting, editing, trimming, big revision, small revision, all that stuff in between. There's a lot that you can do, no doubt. But the the limit is, well, eventually you're going to get, you're going to need feedback. You're going to need somebody else's opinion, whether that's a beta reader or a critique partner or uh, a writing coach or an editor or a whole ass writing group or whatever. Somebody somewhere is going to have to come along and give you some idea of what the next steps would be. Now you don't have to take them up on their steps. There's no guarantee that they're right or anything, but it's at least another direction to go in because getting other people who have no attachment to a thing, you're less objective. You're, you're less emotionally compromised. They're not at all. They've never seen this thing before in their life. They're able to look at it with a bit more space and point to it and go, all right, yeah, I can take that out. Yep. You can change this. This is unclear to me and it'll help give you a little bit of steering and maybe Maybe that'll catalyze into something where you can do more with the book, expand it, alter it, get you thinking, get your creative juices flowing, and the next thing you know, it's not a trunk novel anymore. By and large, though, there's also the specter we have to address that if it's done and clean, you know, not messy, you could publish it independent of feedback, independent of revision. You could just put it out. That's that's one of the upsides and downsides of self-publishing. It takes very little effort to press that button. Now, does that mean anything? Maybe to some people. But maybe you just want to have the book out in the world. That's a decision you get to make on your own. Can I scrap it for parts? Absolutely, you can scrap it for parts. It's your thing. You can do with it whatever you want to whatever degree you want. Absolutely scrap it for parts and rewrite. Oh, I want to keep this, keep this, and chuck the rest. Totally. Um, what's, is it Yahtzee? I think it's Yahtzee where you roll the dice and you get to keep a few and then you can roll the rest. You could do that forever. Infinite re-rolls. Scrap whatever you want. No, who's going to know? I mean, you just told me this abstract trunk novel exists, but like, you think the reader's going to know? Unless they, unless you sit there and go, hey, this used to be a trunk novel, they're not going to know. Scrap whatever you want. Rewrite whatever you want. Nobody's keeping track. It's not an indication of being a bad writer or, or being a, a, a lousy person. Scrap and repurpose whatever you need to. Whatever's going to help you tell the best story, whatever's going to help you reach your goal, that's what you do. So if you've got to scrap and revise and gut and scrap over and over and over again, go for it. Go for it. Work your craft, tell your story, produce your art, no matter what. Absolutely. Totally scrap it. If you're looking for a more formal statement, here you go. I, a writing coach, with over two decades of professional experience, hereby give you, not just you specifically, Ross, but everyone listening to this, I give you permission 
to scrap parts of a story so that you can rewrite it. There's your official industry permission. Have some air horns. It's an epic fantasy story I can't let go of. Then don't let go. There's something uh, I just need to get it out. Yeah, you just need to get it out. Just figure out what that takes. Throw a million things at the wall. See what happens. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll take a couple extra bits of tinkering and, and fudging. Maybe you've got to double back on what you wrote because you could do it better now. you got to give yourself the chance to succeed just as quickly as you give yourself a chance to be wrong. Don't give up. Keep going. Good stuff. Other questions? Else we will march on. It's already 8 o'clock. It's already been an hour. Holy shit. Me and my warm tea and my absence of cats who are all downstairs where it's warmer. I laid the fuzzy blanket out on the couch. They're, they're going to be there all night. Other questions? Do I want to go get ice cubes? No, I'm not going to walk away from a stream, Troy. I appreciate the offer. And if you were here, I'd send you for ice in a heartbeat. It's, it's in the bucket in the fridge. But no, I'm not going to just like get up and walk away. That's, that's not a thing I do. What am I, a gaming streamer? I'm just going to have like a pause screen and be like, yo, John's getting ice. Everybody riot. Nah, man, we're just going to do this. I don't even know how to do that stuff, man. I barely know how to operate the software I have. So, no. All right. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. I really should have put ice in this thing. I, I, you know, but I ran up here. I was busy. All right. Here we go. Next one. Question 10. What if I don't want to be on BookTok? That's TikTok about books. What if I don't want to be on BookTok? How am I supposed to get people to read my book? Okay. We have a lot to talk about here. First of all, um, if you don't want to be involved in book talk, you don't have to be. You don't. I understand that a lot of publishers are very big on get on book, you know, get on book talk, figure it out. Because they don't know how to market your shit either. And they're just doing what everybody else is doing. Because following a herd is what traditional publishing is all about. But self-publishing also relies on book talk because it's the popular thing, you guys. And short-form video content designed to go viral apparently, allegedly, sometimes encourages people to buy things. And it doesn't only always mean that people stay on the platform to consume more and more of it so that your data can be mined. Somehow, I guess that leads to book sales. Who knew? But if you don't want to be on BookTok, don't be on BookTok because I don't know if you know this. Most of the planet isn't on BookTok. You don't need to be on BookTok. How are you supposed to get people to read your book? Do you think only people on BookTok buy books? Humans buy books. Humans buy books in loads of places. Online. Bookstores. At sales. In person. From boxes in the trunks of cars. Church basements. Colleges from strange girlfriends and boyfriends whose books you steal in the middle of the night as you're trying to make an indecorous exit. Books get around. Being on Book Talk is not the only way you get somebody to read your book. It's how you get a segment of people who use Book Talk to see the thing you're making, which maybe is about your book, but not necessarily. 
you, you market, you talk about your story, you do it in lots of different places. Cause there are people who, you know, not, not on book talk. Now, Troy over here says, hi, I hired a book talker on Fiverr. Okay. For just a few bucks. And it actually worked. I got sales. Well, I'm happy for you, Troy. That's great. Um, that's wonderful. I'm sorry you had to exploit the gig economy to get some sales. We could have done that better. But, um, hey, if it worked, it worked. I wish you didn't have to buy your way in, but okay. You don't have to be on BookTok, though, if you don't want to be. If you don't want to be anywhere near a camera in your face or this, that, or the other for whatever reason, that's fine. I'm going to tell you, though, that an absence of social media be it intentional or excuse or prejudicial in some way. I don't want to be there. There are, there are bad people on the internet. Yeah, well, there are bad people in public too. But if you're intentionally doing it for reasons you progressively have to convince yourself more and more of, you are actively making it harder to use these same strategies to succeed. Like if you're on, if you're opposed to being a writer with social media, you can't apply a social media strategy to market your book because it's going to use things you, you're not on. Like, you can't follow the ways you market on Twitter if you're not on Twitter. I, I've never understood. I mean, I understand not wanting to be on social media because social media is horrendous. But at the same time, if you're not going to use those tools, you have to go to completely different strategies to get people to read your book. And most of them are going to be in person and you're going to have to lead the charge. But if you don't want to be on book talk, don't be on book talk. I'm not on book talk. I have no desire to be on book talk. I barely want to endure hashtag writing communities wherever I go because I just want to tell people to make art and encourage them to think and explain them the tools they can use in order to do stuff. So yeah, book talk is book talk. It is not the be all end all. It's the, problem and I've talked about this elsewhere if you take together all the book talk and the, the Twitter and the Instagram and the YouTube or the booktube stuff and and podcasting and newslettering and 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 all these things they say you're supposed to do to sell your book you're going to spend the majority of your time doing those things instead of doing the writing now that's not to say it's all one and zero of the other there is a balance to strike but you have far more control over that balance than these other things are leading you to believe. You can write and occasionally market in ways that make you comfortable, in ways that spread that enthusiasm like we talked about, and you'll do okay. And yeah, you could always go hire a book talker on Fiverr. Sure, you could do that too. You could sell stuff by hand. You could sell stuff at farmer's markets. You could get on a podcast and have people just interview you, or you could interview yourself, or you could just roll things out and have links to drop in stuff. There are loads of ways to do this. You don't have to just go, well, what's everybody else doing? I'm going to do that too, because that's not going to help you stand out. That's not going to help you effectively move, which is what you're trying to do. Stand out, broadcast yourself. Book talk is not the be all end all. You're occasionally better than book talk. Don't get on if you don't want to get on. Here we go. Next question. Question 11. Does my marketing strategy have to change because I'm a writer living in Scotland and not the U.S.? 
it has to change to the degree that you're in a different time zone. We have to add, what is it, five or six hours accordingly? But in terms of what you do to engage with whatever marketing you're doing, no, you're going to do the exact same stuff. The websites might be, you know, differentiated in address. There might be some .co.uk or something in there. I'm not sure. I'm an American. But by and large, the actual stuff you do does not change relative to your geographic location. It doesn't have to. I mean, if you're trying to lean in on like Scottish level stuff specifically because, you know, it wasn't just um, Shetland just had that uh, festival. They lit a boat on fire. Like if, if you're looking to appeal in that way, shape or form, those things are more Scottish than U.S.-ish. So, yeah, you can change your marketing to reflect more of a specific direction or thing you're trying to do. But um, no, overall, just because you're here and not there or over there and not over here or you're at point A and not point B, your strategy does not change due to geography unless you're trying to make a conscious statement of saying, I'm in Scotland, so I'm not going to market, you know, here, here, and here. I'm going to focus my places nearby. But that's a decision you make. But the overall strategy does not necessarily change. It shouldn't. It shouldn't have to. Because once you set up a strategy, not so much in the sense of automation, but once you have a strategy and you're comfortable with it and it's productive for you, meaning you're not taxed overly to do it, your location can vary. I can do just as much work here as I could if I took some amount of this equipment with me to Chicago or Los Angeles or Miami or Edmonton, Canada or New Zealand or wherever. Once you set up a strategy and it works for you, location's flexible, variable. Good question. On we go to the next one. Question 12. What would your ideal book review podcast or YouTube channel look like? I don't know if there's enough tea here in this giant thing to... Okay. Okay. Let's start with book review. Book reviews are tough. Not because there's an expectation that it has to sound a certain way. Like you have to sound like you've got to stick up your ass or something. Book reviews are tough because they're still an opinion. And for whatever level of expertise you want to assign the book reviewer, whether they're an expert because they've reviewed so many books or they're an expert because of a job they have or had, or whether they're uh, educated or skilled in some particular way, or they just have a lot of experience in and around something, it's still opinion. And this is true for book review, movie review, whatever review. It's still an opinion, which means you still get to disagree with it. And that's fine. You're more than welcome to. But I think the best book review setup, podcast-wise or otherwise, video or otherwise, is two or three people who not only would walk through some of the material in the story, like here's some plot stuff, here's some stuff to pay attention to, but it would also discuss, in their opinion, and making it known as such, 
what they thought worked for them based on their expectations rather than just make a blanket statement like this didn't work for me or I didn't think this was very good. Rather frame it instead as I was expecting the story to go in this particular direction. So when it didn't, it didn't work for me. It would require a bit more discussion, a bit more transparency, I guess might be a word, a bit more disclaiming to make clear what it was the reader was expecting or why they felt they were expecting it, as opposed to just making the opinionated back half of their sentences. I didn't like it. It didn't hold my interest. Why? Because I had an expectation that it was going to go some way and it didn't. I think if they better equipped both sides of it rather than just do the one side, uh, you'd get a more effective and evocative book review. And I still think you could do all that and keep the tone engaging, keep it funny, keep it light, keep it sarcastic, keep it witty, keep it erudite, keep it however, you know, you want to keep it. I think book reviews are best done in group rather than single person yapping into a microphone because at least with multiple people, you're somewhat disguising the fact that it's just somebody talking, giving an opinion. YouTube channel, I'm assuming we're talking about like YouTube book review, same deal. However, I would lean in on two separate elements, not necessarily in the same way I would with a podcast. The nice thing about podcasts is it's an audio thing, which means they, much like me right now, can hang out in like a bathrobe. No one's going to know unless you say something. I think for YouTube, it's not so much about like tucking your shirt in and everything. Or, or making sure you have the right kind of dangling icicle lights in your background to create bokeh or that you need to have a special Sigma lens in order to... Don't get hung up on the gear and don't get hung up on like the specifics of other like tech review YouTube because that's a hole under which you will fall and never you know recover. I think you want to focus more on defining a format. How I review a book, one, two, three, four, five, six, however many steps, what I'm looking for, hopefully with more than one person so that it's not just one person doing all the yapping, but a structure and a format that deconstructs the story, not in terms of it's like pluses and minuses or some arbitrary, we're going to ding a bell every time there's a thing we don't like, rather than just have it be this arbitrary complaint factory, even though it's an opinion, cite constructively why you feel the way you feel. Don't just say, this is my opinion. Okay, I'm done. Bye-bye. Do something substantial with it. And YouTube affords us that extra layer of relatability because we can use things like production, like graphics, like transitions, like camera moves, like B-roll, like backing tracks, like all that stuff. We can create a more produced and polished thing, even on you know, a Logitech webcam and some judicious editing in Final Cut Pro or, or Blackmagic or something, or DaVinci. And you can really put together something that gives an impression while also supporting your opinions effectively. That's how I would build that stuff. Maybe you would do something different, and that's totally fine. But the most important element that you need in a book review is not what book reviews have become now, which are essentially book flexes. Look how smart I am. Look how well-read I am. Look how I can reference other things. That's where book reviews have gone. 
that's that's the state book reviews are in now. And then it's usually punctuated by a very overly simplistic, under-detailed, somewhat arbitrary ranking or grading system. Because the goal in book reviews now is to get people to read the review and not necessarily the item being reviewed. Stay on platform, give clicks, spike metrics, profit. Whereas I think a book review that is focused on delivering review along a specific structure, I think would be more effective. Not necessarily, I'm going to give this one four out of six burritos. Because, okay. Or 6.5 stars because it's a wrestling match from Japan. I'm leaving that one in for my friend Jeff. But, yeah. I think a structure format for YouTube especially is helpful. Great question. Shall we wrap this sucker up? One more question. Let's go. Question 13. What should I look for in a writing course online? Well... Let me tell you, first of all, sticker shock is a thing. Now, why is sticker shock a thing you're saying? Okay, sticker shock's a thing because a lot of writing courses have huge elevated pricing structure. Why do they have huge elevating pricing structure? Because what they're trying to do is create a sense of expertise and exclusivity. Expertise is, well, clearly this must be good. Look how much they're charging for it. And exclusivity, they're creating an environment where only people who can afford to pay will pay, which eliminates people who are considerably, by some metrics, less serious. You're going to put your money where your mouth is. So step one, you're going to look for, you're going to look for the price. And that's going to be a major arbiter as to what it is that follows. So you look at your price. You figure out your budget. Some places will have payment plans. Some places will have more than one payment plan. Some places will have a low price point. Some places will just be like, nope, it's how much this is. Suck it. And that's fine. It is whatever it is. But the next thing you want to do, look at the price and the payment plans, and then look and see if the course details to some degree what they offer. Not just like, oh, it's 10 weeks of videos. But is there a further breakdown of what stuff goes in the videos? Is there a partial or complete syllabus available? Because what you're looking to do is figure out what that information is and weigh it against the price. Because if I just tell you that, oh, it's, I'm going to make a number up. It's, it's $1,000 and it's 10 weeks. Okay, so you're saying $1,000 at 10 weeks, it's $100 a week worth of value. Do I have any idea what they're giving me for my $100? I'm buying $100 worth of stuff. What am I getting? You should be able to make some kind of decision like that. You should be able to have that information rather than rely on just taking their word for it. They're already asking a lot by giving you this big-ass giant call to action with this big-ass giant price tag and this fancy website that's designed to give you a sense of fear because they're highlighting a problem that they're saying they can solve, and they're doing it with a number of other tricks and strategies to keep you on the page and keep you thinking about the problem rather than thinking about the expense or thinking about how it can be solved. So weigh the price against the opportunities, against the material. See if there is a way 
Now, in some cases, you want to see if there's a way to get a refund. Because if it seems too good to be true, hey, guess what? Sometimes it is. Most of the time it is. Nearly always it is. But see if there's some point of contact. Now, sometimes the skeevy places will be like, hey, I've got this free, I've got this course, but if you're curious about it, you can come to this free Facebook, I'm making air quotes, training, which is essentially a glorified upsell where they take one to 5% of the information, package it up in a little PowerPoint or keynote presentation, and then slap an upsell on it to go, if you liked this two slides, well then, hey, you're really going to love this course. Plunk down the credit card now and see if there's any kind of engagement or interaction with people where they don't immediately transition to a hard upsell. Because the harder they come back to that upsell and the harder they hide behind the paywall of, well, once you sign up, my team, it's always a fucking team, my team will help you. No, they won't. No, they won't. Because if they were really interested in helping you, they'd help you before you made the purchase. This is my primary problem with writing course culture. It's one of the primary things I'm having in struggling to put together my own stuff because I know all the tactics, I know all the strategies, and I'm trying to make sure I'm good to the writers because a lot of these courses are mostly good to the course maker and less the writer. And I really want something that's going to help people, not just sell you on things you've heard before, but genuinely help you. And it takes time. And I don't have a team. I don't have trainings. There's me and this computer and that laptop and a variety of microphones on very little sleep, a lot of caffeine, and an erratic, inconsistent schedule. But for your writing course, you don't want to find or fall into the overly corporatized trap. My team, my department, my people, these, you know, the admin, the system, the login, all these different barriers that are hidden and tucked away in things that they're not talking about. The less and less you get a sense from the marketing that you're dealing with a person and you're dealing more and more with like a machinery or a mechanism, the less satisfied you're going to be with this product, especially for a writing course. Because writing is an art. And the minute you start turning this into a machine with a system and this sort of one-size-fits-all approach, just hear a cash register, cha-ching, cha-ching, because that's all they're taking you for. A truly good functional writing course values you as a person and provides clearly visible, understandable content. You should know what you're getting into. There should be a syllabus. It should be maybe not detailed to the nth degree because that's what the course is for, but it should at least be clear. You should be able to look at that and go, okay, week three in my 10-week course is all about, I don't know, plot. And rather than just say week three plot, does it have bullet points? Does it have a follow-up? Does it tell me anything? What about plot? A lot of these courses, particularly the grifty ones, rely on you filling in the blanks. They just say it's plot. And then you project and go, well, they must be talking about how to write a good plot. Otherwise, they wouldn't mention it. And then they talk about these things with a lot of dot, dot, dots, a lot of ellipses, a lot of strangely capitalized words in the middle of sentences, a lot of strange language where they keep calling you my friend or hey, pal, or 
language that is not normally spoken to you by another human being. It sounds a little weird, but they're trying to assume like a chummy atmosphere. They're not going to be like, hey, what's going on? It's going to be, hello, friend. That's not a you're the only human who calls me that. That kind of strange discrepancy between relatability and opportunity further throws up those red flags as to what defines a course. And then let's just talk about the material, how it's delivered. The less, how do we put this? The less functional the material, the more it's falling on you to teach yourself. And if you're ever trying to learn an art and develop something on your own where you would normally be exposed to experts and examples and models, you while you might be like me, a person who is best taught on their own time and in their own way, you want a very hands-on approach for these things. Not just somebody who's like, I have a one hour a week where you can you know, jump through a couple hoops and then you'll get access to it. Nah, nope, not like that at all. Because that's no different than having a team and having a gatekeeper and having a barrier. You should have the ability to be able to access not only the material, but the material giver to ask specific questions. Yes, Ross, if you say you're going to train me, then train me. You don't go to a boxing gym when they give you one glove and then they only teach you to jab unless they give you, unless you pay another, you know, 1K. Yeah, if you're getting nickeled and dimed, if you're if everything comes with a fee and everything is an extra add-on, they're not in this to teach you how to write. They're not in this to get you to write more effective sales copy. They're in this to sell, to move units and sell stuff and make cash. They're not interested in your book. They could give a shit about your book. They could give a shit about you. To them, you are something to exploit. You're somebody with a credit card. You're somebody with a bank account. They're not going to buy your book next year when it comes out. They are going to forget about you. They'll say something nice like, good job, friend, taking this course. Hooray, here's a GIF and an emoji. But at the end of the day, you are expendable to them. And a good writing course does not make you expendable. A good writing course should empower you. A good writing course should be a combination of education and information, but also show you utility. It's totally great to know the theory. It's way better to know the theory and be able to point to it in your own work and say, this is why I use it. This is why I don't use it. A good writing course is pointed at the idea of making you a better writer. A writing course that is big on telling you how great it is, a writing course that is very big on pointing out how many other people have taken it, a writing course that wants to tell you that a very famous celebrity took it, and now you should too. And a writing course that spends, oh, I don't know, seven of the last 12 email newsletters telling you that, hey, you don't want to miss out. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to miss out, do you? Is not a writing course that's actually going to help you. Because the minute you run into frustration, because you will, you're learning a thing that's new to you. You're going to run into a, a, some kind of stumbling point. The minute that you do, that course is going to say, well, it must be your fault because look at all these people who have done it. And they're going to make you feel stupid. And you shouldn't feel stupid for doing a thing you've never done before because you've never done it before. Mistakes happen. 
It's okay to make mistakes. It's good to make mistakes. Mistakes can be teachers and motivators and chances to reassess and they're places to ask questions. Don't fear mistakes. Don't fear the mess. But a lot of writing courses and a lot of grifty McGriftersons are way more interested in showing you how great they were that they had all this money or time or gear or tech or you know, they took the scam course too, and now they're just trotting out one more thing, offering all these free trainings. When ultimately they're not training you for anything other than to figure out when to say yes and hand over your credit card because they're leveraging your fear more than your excitement to produce art. That's what you want to look for in a writing course. That's how you can spot the grifters. I don't like grifters. I can't stand them. They don't like me either. I wonder why. Are there any more questions from anybody in chat? Else, we will get out of here. Can you end chat with a spicy question? Sure, you can end chat with a spicy question. Let's go. I would love a spicy question. It's not like we haven't had spicy questions all day. Let's do some spicy questions. What's up? Is it like, why am I wearing a bathrobe? Because the answer is embarrassing. I spilled toothpaste on my hoodie. Is it possible? Oh, is it possible to separate art from artist when the artist is still alive and actively promoting hateful shit? Oh. All right. Here comes John's opinion. It is always possible to separate art from artist. It is spicy. It's a good one, man. I appreciate it. It is always possible to sit there and put aside everything and try to look at it as cold as possible. It is very possible to separate art from artist. Whether the artist is alive or dead, doing this or doing that. I think those are, those are valid elements, but so often for so many people, it, they become the distraction because they start trying to answer the question, why? Why do we have to separate the art from the artist? I think, John's opinion, I think separating art from artist allows you to take more things, good and bad, away from both art and artist as you consume them. Because some artists, alive or not, are or were shitty people. Fascists, Nazis, bigots, sexists, homophobes, whatever. There are humans, because artists are fundamentally human, there are humans who are, who are not great people, who do not contribute positively and effectively and good for society. They're assholes and mean and, and aggressive and shitty, and they're the worst parts of all things devoid of empathy and care. So artists can be bad people. 
However, the art they produce, while it is a part of them and a part from them, it is not solely theirs. So shitty artist makes a thing. They've put some part of themselves into it. Yes. Maybe they've put a great deal of themselves into it, but it still requires the other part of this transaction to be the reaction and response of the audience. Because let's say this shitty person produces a thing, whatever it might be, and it, they produce a thing and that thing carries with it a certain level of baggage that is not positive. It has some hate packaged in it. It can be hard to look away from that because of how dominant it is. But at the same time, the audience's reception of, oh, I know this is bad. I know this is hateful. But this has come to me at a point in my life where it had some net positive to me. Not because I agree with the hate, but because it just caught me at this, at this crossroads, at this intersection, at this moment in my life. And so it is through the lens of my nostalgia, it is through the lens of my emotional impression that I can look at this art and go, for what this art is, it means something to me more than the greater oblique definition that it is universally hateful because it was created by a hateful person. I think it should be always possible to do that. I don't know how noble or naive that is, but I think people should reach a point where they can do that. Um, I know a lot of people won't. They won't be interested in doing that because it's easier to sit in the single space where it's, nope, bad people make bad things universally. Okay. And I understand that. I, I super get it because you can't look past the hate because you're directly affected by it. Sure. I get it. Absolutely. I've never had that experience. I, I lack the, I lack the experience to gauge your response. I can only take you at your word. However, some of the worst things in the world were made by people who were not intending them to be bad. And some good people made things thinking it was going to be okay. And it turned out to be terrible. You've got to be able to separate creation from creator there's a whole religion built on that. So why are we complaining? Why, why, I don't understand. Like, I, I genuinely, I'm not being obtuse. I genuinely, I understand the argument. Ah, oh, this hateful person did a thing and the hateful thing is bad. Yep. But back in the day, people ate that up with a spoon. How are the, you're challenging them to reconcile it only negatively. Because now you're asking them to look backwards with the forward view. I, I watched things 30 years ago that would not be producible today. I listened to audiobooks from people who I know now and didn't know at the time were terrible people. And I liked their books. And they spend their day now promoting terrible things. But I like this book. Does that make me a bad person? I like a book. Is it because I like the wrong book? 
should I should I like this book in secret? These are the doors that open when we start twisting around this conversation. And it's not easy. There are no universal answers, including the universal answer of bad people always make bad things. We cannot strip the nuance away just because we want to make sure everybody knows the bad shit is bad. We can operate from the position that we know the bad shit is bad, but we're going to do more than just sit in this binary black-white space. Why? Because those hateful people are only sitting in the binary black-white bad space. And we should make an effort to do better. We're not looking to rehab the bad person. We're not going to waste our breath because we know they're not going to be rehabbed. But we can stop and think about on our own terms what it is we want to engage with, what it is we are willing to deal with or not deal with. We can weigh things like there is no ethical consumption under capitalism alongside with my friends are bothered by me doing this thing. And we can weigh that against, well, is it really hurting anybody? My friends don't like a lot of the things I do. What's one more thing on this list? Or vice versa. I don't want to upset anyone. So my known and unknown activities will all be lensed through some kind of relationship or parasocial or codependent or dynamic relationship I have. I think you can separate art from artist. I think you should. I don't think enough people will. I don't think enough people do. I think it's messy. Now, you're bringing up a point that you think the level of hate taints the story. Absolutely it does. Because once you realize like, oh, here's this element of the story, and now you have a better nuanced understanding of, oh, that's what that means? Oh, that's what that joke is? Oh, shit. Yes, it can corrode. It can taint. Absolutely, Ross. I completely agree with you. However, as you say, the book belongs to the reader once it's out in the world. So isn't it up to the reader to make a conscious decision? In my life, and you can find this shit on the internet, in my life I have said and done terrible things. I used to be, and this isn't just like, oh, John was an addict. No, I used to be 20 years old. I used to be completely oblivious to the ramifications of a lack of empathy. I used to engage with and hang out with and popularize toxic people who 30 years later have gone on to be, you know, coup people or active violent racists. But I knew them way before then. And I look back at my time now with that, in that experience and go, well, that's insensitive. That's pretty shitty. I'm really glad I matured past that point. Neat. And some of that stuff I can go back and listen to. Because, you know, yes, there's some not great stuff happening in this couple seconds and those couple seconds. But by and large, I remember where I was at that moment when that thing happened. And I laughed. I laughed then. And it's still a funny joke. I'm laughing now, even though seven seconds earlier, somebody was a little insensitive. And I laughed at that too. But I was also 20. I can't get mad, you know, I can't get mad at my past. I don't have a time machine. I'm already plenty mad at what I've done for myself for the last 20 years. But 
at some point you have to you have to let it go on yourself. I'm not saying you have to like accept that the hateful people are just going to be hateful, whatever. Like that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like if you engaged with a thing that at the time you didn't know was super awful, like you knew it was maybe a little inappropriate, a little risque, a little insensitive to some degree, but nowhere near to the degree you think it now, it's up to you to reconcile that. It's up to you to sit there and go, yeah, you know what? I can't engage with that stuff. I know it's on YouTube. I can hear my, I can hear my laugh in the background because my laugh's apparently very distinctive and it hasn't really changed in 20-something in years. Okay, so maybe I don't listen to all that stuff. Maybe I, when I get hit with that sense of like, oh, I remember this vaguely, you give it a listen once and you say, I can't go back. It's done. Door's closed. That's on me to decide when I open or close my doors. Other people might say universally, oh, that, that piece of media. Well, you know, that's made by such and such and so-and-so who did such and such and so-and-so. Yeah, I know. I know. And looking back at it now, it makes complete sense that that's what happened in the future. But back then, I just thought like, well, this is just how shit is. But I got away from that. That's not because I'm sitting here telling you how great I am. I'm a terrible person sometimes. But at the same time, it's up to every single one of us on an individual basis to make our determinations as to what we will engage with, what we will not engage with, what we are willing to stand up and be engaged with by, and what we are willing to say, nope, I'm not dealing with this shit. We have to do this individually on our own terms, at our own time. And sometimes that means we're going to disagree with people. Some people are going to do it faster. Some people are going to do it slower. Some people are going to do it because they just feel pressured by other people. But it's up to every single person. And then the domino effect thereof also matters. Because if I like a thing and you don't, and that is so deleterious to our relationship, John, I, I can't listen anymore. You've lost a subscriber. You've lost a viewer because you like this thing. Okay. So you're going to leverage your dislike of a thing against my engagement with a thing and then tell me about it. Why? Because you want me to change my behavior? Why not just ask me to change my behavior? Why not do that? Why not roll up and go, hey, John, why do you like this thing? What's up? And have a conversation about it. Probably because the platforms at which we all talk about what it is we engage with and how we engage with things aren't built for that because those things contain nuance. And social media hates nuance. But I think if we all like took the extra five fucking seconds to really give out like some thoughtful answer and respect everybody's position throughout the conversation and be willing to both challenge them and challenge ourselves. I think we'd be able maybe not to reach consensus, but reach a better depth of understanding so that we can go that artist produces things I don't like now, but at one point they produced something I did like. And I can honor and treasure the thing I did like 
because of the situation, the time, whatever. There are stuff I can take away from that and go, that meant something to me. And then divorce that from everything else going forward. Also, yes, as you point out, it is so much easier to be outraged on social media than engage with people and have thoughtful conversation. I'm a dude who loves a good, thoughtful conversation. It's a lot easier when I'm caffeinated or if you catch me right after I've taken like some amount of anxiety medication so that my personal stress level is like winding down so I can sit here and like get to this spot. Uh, Today, by the way, that's because I've had five cups of tea. If you caught me the other day, it's because I started a new anti-anxiety med and it's amazing. And I'm able to be like, oh shit, I have focus again. Let's do things. But yes, outrage is always easier because outrage is rewarded. It's rewarded with attention. It's awarded with validation. It's awarded with clicks. It's awarded with bright, single, flashy colors and little buttons and doodads. Whereas a thoughtful conversation, whether we agree or disagree, because I don't need you to agree with me. I want you to have your own opinion. I, in fact, will demand you have your own opinion. And it can be the same as mine. It can be different than mine. It can be totally the same, partially the same. I don't care. Just have an opinion, please. That's what I want. I want thoughtful discourse. Because the only way you're going to make a difference, the only way we're going to elevate anything beyond click this, don't forget to like and subscribe. By the way, don't forget to like and subscribe. Um, The only way we get past click this and clickbait and click outrage is if we sat down and talked to each other. Rather than just say, well, what is everybody on the internet saying? The internet says a lot. And they're not wrong. Like, there are people who are actively harmed by the hurt artists produce. But at the same time, you can't hold me 20 years ago accountable today for the dominoes that have toppled since I engaged with something. That's like saying, I'm going to get really mad at this baby because this baby I know is going to grow up and, you know, kick a puppy one day. It's not the baby's fault. Baby's just a baby. Get mad at the puppy kicker. Get mad at the moment, at the point of, at, at the point of inflection. Don't get mad at the genesis. It's easy to get mad at the genesis because it robs us of control. We can't do anything about it, but we can be outraged about it. Had somebody come back to me and been like, John, you were on the path to like weird, strange, racist fascism. What's up? I probably would have been incredibly dismissive because, no, man, I'm just hanging out with my friends and we're having fun, even though they're really exploitative, a little bit racist and sexist, kind of phobic. But, you know, like, it's a job and it's fun and I get to drink and hang out and, like, there are naked people and it's pretty cool. Okay, go fuck off now. But if you came back and, you know, after I got, even after I started using heavily, and you came back and you're like, look at this stuff you did 10 years ago. Yeah, no, it was great. It was a job at that point because I had been burned out by it. And now if I go back and look at it even further, I'm like, I was a dumb kid and I would have pulled out a lot sooner. But I liked the work and I didn't want to be alone. And I I liked the attention I got because I can make people laugh and I like making people laugh. So not the greatest thing in the world, but I'm not that person anymore. 
Maybe that's important to this conversation too. Maybe if we're going to sit and talk about hateful artists and consuming art that affects us differently at different times, maybe we have to consider our potential to change. I watch some old movies and TV shows now and I'm like, this shit's terrible. But I remember a time where I'm like, oh, this was really good. Is that bad? Does that make me wrong? No. Tastes change. I grew up. I got differently educated. I had different experiences. Some stuff didn't hit the same anymore, as the kids say. But I can only get to that point by separating art from the artist. By being able to appreciate art at a distance. And I can't pick and choose when I do that. Because if I do, I'm no different than those hateful, bigoted people who are picking and choosing their arguments to spread that hate. I'm either going to do it all the time and be able to make cogent defenses of my position as well as opposition for the people not doing it. Or I'm just going to roll with it and go like, yeah, you're right. It's all about the, you know, the big, broad statement. You're right. I'm going to curb my behavior while also simultaneously complain about how, you know, the Internet shouldn't be policing what people choose to do. What kind of anarchist would I be if I keep telling you that every kind of hierarchy is a problem except this one kind of hierarchy where I'm totally cool with it? You've got to reconcile and deal with a lot more nuance than social media will allow. So yes, you brought me a spicy question. And yes, I've been talking about it far longer than I talked about several other answers tonight. We haven't even gone to the outro yet. But thank you, because I will always appreciate a conversation that's meaningful. Even if I don't score a win or come out ahead or change everybody's mind. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. Other questions, issues, etc. Else we will go to the outro unless you have more spicy questions. I still got about half an hour. We could do more spicy. The longer we go, the later stuff just gets posted. I'll just post all this stuff tomorrow to stuff. That's fine. Questions, issues, anything else? We'll march right on out of here. No, it's totally fine. I really, you're out of hot ones. I get it. I super understand. Um, yeah, I'm doing okay. See, this is what happens. I get on medication that like drops my anxiety and I'm able to be like, oh, right. This is who I am as a person now that I'm no longer like constantly freaked out. Cool. And my brain immediately like goes for like, oh, meaning and compassion and nuance and thinking, please more of this because that's what I want to put into the world. So yes, you've caught me in a good time. I'm looking forward to tonight's dose of anti-anxiety meds because, oh, man, I slept so well the other night. Fucking rad. All right. Shall we go to the outro? Shall we get out of here? Have we done enough? Let's go to that beautiful, beautiful outro. Thank, thank you to each and every single one of you. This one was great. Love this one. Thank you for the meaningful conversation. Thanks for letting me ramble and rant about software. Thanks for letting me talk about art and artists and everything else in between. Thanks for putting up with my hot tea that I thought was at least room temperature. 
Thanks for cursing with me. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for asking your amazing questions. Uh, this was this was great. Love this so much. Love all of you so much. Thanks for being here. The next time I'm here in your ears and probably in your eyes in front of a camera will be sometime in March. Uh, I'm. It's not going to be next week. I know that. Uh, stay tuned to the newsletter for a more specific date. Things are just up in the air right now with some work stuff, but I will be right back here probably at least in the podcast feed, delivering things because I can record that during the workday. Streams are a little bit time variable, but I'll be around. I'm not going anywhere. We'll still be here doing stuff. You can find all those details out at johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com and then you click the newsletter button when it pops up. You'll get all the info as it happens. Thanks so much for being here. All power to all people. Please take care of yourselves. Tell people you love them. Tell people how you feel. Get in touch with yourself. Be kind to yourself and keep producing art. I will talk to you guys very, very soon. See ya!